Hello and welcome to Long Range Sensors, the show where we reminisce about growing up with Star Trek and discuss an episode from the vast library of the Star Trek franchise. Today, we'll be picking up the Next Generation episode, The Most Toys. But first, we want to thank our founding member supporters over on Patreon, whose generous support has made this episode possible. If you want to find out how you can support the show and get exclusive benefits too, you can visit patreon.com forward slash long range sensors. My name is Trev and I'm based in London, England. And joining me from Nova Scotia is the Ayatollah of Rock and Roller, Alistair. How's it going, Al? <laughs> it's going good. How about yourself? I think that adjective is, uh, or that, that nickname has shocked you a bit, isn't it? It has a little bit, yeah. <laughs> the I'm trying to come up with good ones. I'm trying to come up with good ones. Each time, a lot. Some people might know these aren't original, but yeah, it'll be fun for them to 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 see what what where these are from. But yeah, I'm I'm good. Uh, quite warm. One thing to mention, actually, because I'm quite warm, I have aircon in um in my room at the moment. So there's a faint hum in the background. That'll probably be it. Um, but yeah, apart from that, I'm pretty good. Um, so are you, are you good? How, how you doing? Are you hot as well? And got aircon going or no aircon here? No, we're about uh, sixteen degrees. Uh, so we're, we're doing okay for now, but uh, we'll we'll see how things are in a couple of months. I mean, this is Canada that I'm in, yeah. so it, it's uh, famous for not being crazy hot, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it, it. I mean, we're recording this in May yeah. for, for anybody who's listening to the the back catalogue. Weather here tends to fluctuate. Sometimes it's hot, sometimes it's cold. It's not really a standard right now, but uh, uh, we're getting into better weather, which is which is a relief. Yeah, so it's May, obviously, yeah, and uh, in the UK that normally means, you know, things should be warming up, but it's li- li- like this weekend, uh, it's just been raining and dull and everything, so it's just <laughs> sit on the backside and play video games weather, really, so well, I do that mm. when it's really warm sometimes, so um, talking of things you can do when you're sat inside and there's not much else to do, that leads us nicely into our Trek lifestyle segment, and we want to talk about Star Trek comics. Now, we have touched upon them a couple of times already. I mean, uh, back in the very first episode, um, I actually talked about how the very bizarre introduction to Star Trek The Next Generation that I got, because being in the UK, you know, we didn't have a TV network that just showed it when it came out. Like, perhaps anybody listening in America like you guys got. We talked all about that in the first episode. I don't don't want to rehash that. But my personal like introduction is to there's a new Star Trek thing was uh, seeing the Star Trek The Next Generation comic um, in, in mm. you know, to buy it in, in, in one of my local news agents. Um, so, yeah, we're going to talk about that. And then, Al, we can actually talk about something you mentioned in the last episode where you saw a Star Trek comic, I think, in a news agent as well, a Next Generation one, I think it was, in like the early 90s. Uh, well, no, I didn't, I didn't really see them in the news agents. That was the weird thing, was that, uh, that I didn't. Yeah. But... There was an annual that I had, and it's, it's weird, I'd completely forgotten about it uh-huh. until after the episode. All right. I, I had a Star Trek The Next Generation annual. It was from uh, season two. It's got uh, the cast photo there with Dr. Pulaski uh, at the back of the bridge. It was a very yellow book, and I lost it. I don't know where it ended up. It I, I misplaced it somewhere from traveling, you know, either 
within England or to Canada. But I managed to hunt down a copy from online. Now, one thing I never really realized at the time when I had it as a kid is that it is Marvel. And this annual is the only one that they did yes. for Next Generation. There was a bunch for, for the classic series. But it has profiles on different species like the Romulan and the Borg. It has breakdowns on how they did effects. It's got um, a lot of sketches for a lot of costume design and things. You know, stuff that is obviously not comic book related. But it yeah, did have yeah. a comic inside that was split into two parts one it is at the beginning and then they kind of say continues on page 52 or whatever and it yeah. was uh the hand of the assassin which was from volume two uh of the uh of the marvel comics the uh, or dc uh, as i suppose it would have been was it dc yeah. or marvel it's, in the uk it's kind of strange yeah, it's so... Because you were mentioning about this before. Yeah, obviously we didn't want to get too much detail because we knew we'd talk about it and we're here now, so we're going to talk about it. But um, <laughs> there's a bit of a random history with, like, uh, Star Trek comics. I mean, in terms of generally, in, in what and we're probably referring to the US where all this stuff originated, um, they started in, like, the 60s, actually. Gold Key Comics uh, published the original Star Trek comics when that went from between 1967 and 1978. So they had the license for quite a while. Uh, and then hmm. Marvel actually got the license um, in 1979, basically as part of the adaptation uh, or comic adap adaptation of uh, Star Trek, the motion picture. And then they just carried on making uh, new stories that took place in that motion picture kind of era for another two years. Um, and then um, it kind of went over to, uh, we, we got to the 80s. And then when we hit 1984, um, and we had Star Trek just after Star Trek 2. Uh, well, Star Trek 3 really was coming out at this point. Um, DC uh, got the license. So um, Marvel finished up what they were doing. It went over to, 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 to DC. So I think there was a bit of a year or two gap between Marvel and Marvel series finishing and DC picking it up. But they started um, their own uh, Star Trek series. Um, and it was based on like the movie era, um, the movie era after Star Trek 3. And goes mm. off on its own stories of the crew doing what they're doing. Um, I didn't read a lot of those. That sort of first generation. I mean, that that my my uh, main knowledge of Star Trek comics is that DC kind of run that would go all the way to '96. Um, but right. yeah, it started off with an initial series that focused on the movie crew, the original series crew in the movie era. Uh, it was kind of very odd. It's almost like an alternate reality um, because taking place after Star Trek 3. They didn't know they were going to get another Enterprise, and they hadn't really at that point because the fourth movie had come out. So they they actually had, like, Captain Kirk and everybody, or Admiral Kirk, who had still been then, uh, taking over the Excelsior. They get kind of given the Excelsior. Um, okay. It takes command of Excelsior. Yeah, again, what I mean by it is kind of a weird alternate reality. And they go on adventures, basically, on the Excelsior, um, and it goes off on its own tangent of adventures that they have. Uh, and this first kind of series, DC series, ran to, I think, 1989. And then when we sort of got around to Star Trek V, um, they relaunched the the movie, uh, the original series crew in the movie era comic. Uh, so there's a volume two of it, basically. Um, and that sort of took place um, around Star Trek V uh, and carried on until 96. Um, so, again, this is the, back on the Enterprise A, having their own adventures, I remember a few issues. There was one where Harry Mudd came back and in, into the movie era. Um, some really, really cool stories. Um, and then alongside that, there was a Next Generation comic um, that DC, obviously they had the Star Trek license, so they got Next Gen. 
when the first series of the original cast volume one series was happening, they did a six issue next generation miniseries around the time the series began. Uh, it okay. might have been in, uh, in 88, just before the second season. That might be um, so why it, this is the the comic that I have in this annual um, is listed as being from volume two. I imagine volume one must have been during season one. Yeah, so it's again, it's a bit of an odd one. This 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 initial mini series. It started in um, um, nineteen eighty eight and ran for six issues. They probably were worried that maybe we've already got one Star Trek comic. Are they going to want? And we don't know if Next Generation will, will be popular and lots of people will watch it. No one hmm. might buy the comic. We don't want to commit to an ongoing sort of thing. So um, they did the six issues, and it's a bit of a weird comic. Um, again, it's probably based on the original Star Trek Next Generation right, Season 1 Writer's Bible, which would have been written before they actually started filming episodes. Yeah. Um, so there was a lot of ambiguity about who Wesley's father was. Like, is it actually Picard? Um, you know, oh, um, wow. Beverly and, and Jean-Luc um, having a bit more of a relationship than perhaps they did have. Some of the other characters are a bit more, I would say, exaggerated. Like, Riker is literally Captain Kirk. Um, I know that was kind of the vague sort of idea of what his character was to be, but he kind of grew beyond that as, you know, even as, as soon as the second season started. Um, but, yeah, the characters are in flux. Yeah, and this and this is interesting because it's it's one of those things where you can have people who do kind of like their own fan fiction stuff where they spin off and... and yeah, whatever they want to write about. But like you said, like a lot of the content and a lot of the canon wasn't even established then. And these people who are writing these comics are still writers. And it's just interesting to see how the series could have progressed under a different writing team. And so if they're kind of looking at having Picard as Wesley's father, which I'm, I'm glad that that never actually became a canon thing, because I, I don't think that that would have, uh, uh, have been as good. Um, but it's certainly an interesting direction to take things. I mean, they kind of treated it like it was canon, but it obviously it obviously wasn't. It was it's more like an alternate reality. But yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's kind of like when we joke about our own head canon that we have to fill in the gaps with. Um, <laughs> but the, the sort of the writers that sort of did it. Um, uh, I mean, actually, I want to say as well, like the six issue miniseries came to an end, but obviously, it was, a lot of people bought the next generation comic. Um, and they uh, and that became a, 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 a an ongoing series. So there was like a volume two, as we were saying, and that mm. became just an ongoing vo uh, series, volume two. So there was two ongoing DC series. Um, so that was kind of when my kind of my kind of main era of reading Star Trek comics was that DC run from um, eighty four, uh, really the end of the eighties, and I was you know had been born, um, mm. was old enough to start reading the comics, and I was well into comics like generally. So to have a Star Trek one was like awesome. And that ran till 96. But it had some great, I mean, I remember like prominent stuff for me personally. Uh, I'm sure a lot of people have different m memories, but the artwork of the covers, particularly on, on well, by, on both series, really, the Star Trek, the DC Star Trek and Next Gen, a uh, mm. chap called uh, Jerome K. Moore drew these beautiful covers where they look almost like photo real realistic, or, you know, because the, like, uh, the, he got the, act the actors absolutely spot on. And even the starships, you know, because I remember. Like, uh, I, I was reading again, I, keep, I promise I'm going to not mention tran Transformers in every episode, <laughs> but I kind of got it. There is kind of a parallel a little bit here. Um, the guys that sort of drew, I used to hate drawing the Transformers, original Transformers Marvel comic in the 80s because they hated drawing robots because they were, they were far more detailed than just drawing some dude in a costume and it'd be way more time consuming because they absolutely hated it. 
Obviously, we read the comics and thought, look at these cool-looking robots, but the artists were just, it was just a job, and they absolutely tried to just bash bash through it as quickly as they can. It was pretty brutal, the timescales. They had to sort of pump out these monthly comics. Yeah. Um, but I can imagine it was probably the same with all these starships and technology. Yeah. And a lot of it was way out of the, the wheelhouse of Marvel and DC. It was probably difficult to do. Yeah, and this is one of the things that I've certainly noticed over the years, is that the original series Enterprise seems to be one of the easiest for artists to draw yeah. but the the kind of curves and angles that the galaxy class has and it's the same with voyager as well just getting just those shapes to look straight like the ships always look warped yes that's right uh, just because of how challenging it is to draw something that's that kind of shape yeah um and it was basically you know they were, they were just using a lot, a lot of the time when when jerome came more so again, yeah, brilliant. Um, drew some beautiful covers. I think he would kind of use the movie posters and and, and photography from the sets of the movies. He would mm. sort of use those um, as references, and you would it'd be quite obvious sometimes. You'd say, "Oh, he took that shot of the Enterprise from from uh, from this scene from the film." So um, yeah, he, he, I mean, his his covers are absolutely beautiful in terms of the stories. Um, some of them that are very memorable to me, I mentioned like Harry Mudd appears in, in the DC mm. in the Star Trek um, original series series. And also in The Next Generation, there were some great stories of like one one that really sticks out to me is where Q turns the entire crew into Klingons of the Enterprise D. Oh, okay. And um, they all go nuts, <laughs> they're all Klingons. So, so what happens to Worf? Like, does he get turned into a human? I, th- I can't remember. I I, I really should have done more research and read that, that read that story again. But, um, <laughs> I, I honestly can't remember what happened to him. But yeah, the rest of the crew certainly get turned into Klingons. Um, and that's, also, that's um, cool. jumping into the uh, the first volume of the original uh, uh, DC run, the, the movie, the, the original crew series, um, they go into the Mirror U- Universe. So it's kind of cool to see like the movie era mirror universe and um obviously the, the uniforms are the same red those beautiful like uniforms you know the red ones with mm. the clip-on sort of bits and um the very naval looking uniforms it's like they, they sort of drew mirror universe versions with the mirror universe starfleet badge or the empire badge um so yeah um it's very much he's like completely bonkers to some people perhaps um compared yeah. to what they used to but i mean one prominent writer um who general comics fans might be familiar with is peter david who wrote a ton of uh those star trek dc comics he's done like yeah um, aquaman uh captain marvel doctor who the incredible hulk spider-man did a huge run on supergirl in the 90s um the third version of linda danvers um supergirl if that means anything to anybody um which is a great comic if you're looking for a, another dc comic to read the th- um linda danvers supergirl um yeah um, so they got you know really good writers. I think I think Peter Davis was probably a bit of a trekkie as well. Uh, so it was, when they had people like that, they would do lots of you know stuff that us fans you know get kicks out of making references to stuff that happened in the shows mm. and the movies. Expanded on some of those stories, like say bringing back characters like Harry Mudd. Um, but yeah, that was what was happening in the US, and it was that that next generation series that I saw in a you know a random news agent probably in Leicester where I sort of had my early years. Um, around 1989, I think, where I saw this weird, different Star Trek series that I hadn't seen before, and it was a Jerome K. Moore cover, and it had Riker on the cover, and he had a beard. And for so I didn't know who these people were anyway, um, <laughs> but I think when I watched Next Generation, probably a matter of months after I got the comic for the first time, uh, that the cover got even weirder to me, because I was like, I didn't know who these guys were before. 
But this dude on the front of this cover looks like Riker, but he's got a beard. Like, what's that? What's that about? <laughs> I remember you mentioning that a few episodes ago. Yeah. Yeah. So it added layers of, of like weirdness to, you know, this new Star Trek series that we were getting little dri- little dribbles of stuff mm. from because it hadn't launched really officially in the UK. Um, but then um, in the UK and what your, what your annual was, you basically saw a um, what I believe would have been a Marvel UK reprint of yep. those DC comics, and Marvel UK is pretty uh, got an amazing story in itself. Um, um, it started out in uh, the sixties, just reprinting, like just completely regurgitating the um, the, U- the US Marvel a- output, and normally into weekly because comics in the UK would tended to be weekly, like Dandy and Beano and. Uh, you know, later on, uh, 2000 AD and, you know, um, Dan Dare and Eagle and all that sort of stuff. Basically uh, just getting stuff, you know, every single bit of uh, your pocket money. Yeah, <laughs> You yeah. get your pocket money every I mean, week and it goes straight into comics. Yeah. I mean, I used to get like the Dandy and Beano and they were like, you know, 30p. This is like going, it's in like the 90s. It's not like ye old. Well, I guess it is ye old times now. Yeah. But, I mean, it's um, probably like yeah. £7.30 with... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> with inflation by Probably now with inflation <laughs> absolutely yeah so in in the uk we got like just a, a compilation of um well they would chop out seven or eight pages of spider-man seven or eight pages of the incredible hulk seven or eight pages of avengers captain america and they would just splice them all together into i think it was called mighty world of marvel a weekly uk marvel comic and eventually you know i don't think there was that there was, i think it was a very small team of people in in the uk um were actually responsible for putting that at that together when when it originally started mm. um going into the 80s um and actually I'm, I'm looking at the history i mean it was it was um they formed their own british publishing arm in 1972 under the corporate name of magazine management london uk i wonder where they're based <laughs> yeah yeah possibly london uh, <laughs> yeah so but it was basically you know people that were just um there to take the orders of the new york people um, the guys in New York where Marvel's headquarters were in those days. But right. as we got to the 80s, they became independent and started um, hiring, you know, an editor and all that stuff. Uh, I think one of their first editors was Neil Tennant, who people might know as um, one of the guys or the singer from Pet Shop Boys. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, an interesting fact, he was the editor of Marvel Comics in the UK before he became a pop star. <laughs> but the, the, the thing that I... Um, you know um loved about marvel uk was they were they got a lot of licensed uh properties and probably the biggest one for me and a lot of people growing up in the 80s um was um transformers um so they got the us they reprinted the us transformers comic uh, unfortunately because it's weekly they very quickly ran out of the us material so they started writing their own um and they ended up going for about over 300 issues which you know the Transformers US comic, the Marvel comic, uh, ran for eighty. So they had to create their completely own 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 material. We had our own uh, writers and, and and artists, many of whom have gone on to work for the uh, go back to the US and just work on you know regular Marvel pro- properties in the US. After that, and yeah, one of those properties that they got the license for was Star Trek. I don't recall them um, producing the uh, the DC original series crew comics, but I do remember. The next generation but the weird thing was they obviously were reprinting the american dc star trek hmm. next generation comic so yeah there's it, a weird sort of thing where it's marvel printing dc stuff which kind of seems like a forbidden door that's being walked 
we'll walk through there because we think of you know them being as basically rivals, right? Marvel and DC. I mean, probably maybe like more so now, really, with the movie universes, and you know, perhaps we're not going to get into that sort of uh, philosophical debate of which one's better. But um, they would reprint those the, those issues, so that's what you saw. So I think you got in that annual. I think you maybe got a couple of issues worth of the DC comic. I suppose it probably would be issues worth because it's one story, um, and it's yeah. it's essentially where O'Brien is possessed by uh, a telepath and he's forced to try and kill one of two women who were kind of in the running to be queen right wow and so he's 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 then forced to assassinate one of them by either having their their matter pattern scattered out or have a beam into a rock (laughs) something like this and um (laughs) and yeah and then is is caught uh, and figured out by laforge that he's actually the assassin that they've been looking for but he's completely yeah. kind of unaware that he's being manipulated in this way. But um, so it's kind of it's kind of a dark story for O'Brien this early on. Uh, but what was it like for you in terms of the tone of the series? Like, did it kind of sit around the same tone as the show when you started watching that? Did it feel like one was tamer than the other? Um, it was kind of all over the place, really. Some of them were very comic booky and very zany. Um, because mm. they probably had a bit more license to use outlandish aliens because, you know, they're just being drawn. There isn't a budget for makeup um, yeah. or action. I mean, the Borg turned up, I think, in during the Next Generation series. And, you know, so they struggled to really bring them back in Next Generation because, one, they couldn't think of a compelling way to defeat them without making them appear weak. Um, mm. And, um, two, it was expensive. Um, but they didn't have that problem with the comics. They turned up in the comic. Um, but there were some very serious, hard-hitting issues. Um, along with really zany kind of throwaway stuff. So it was a bit all over the place. Funny enough, the annual that you had, that was issue 13 of the U- of the US comic. Yep. From October 1990. Um, hmm. So yeah, that was what was reprinted. The UK comic was a bit weird as well, looking at the history of it. So it started in 1990 and it just reprinted um, the, the DC miniseries. Um, which was basically, you know, a story that was supposed to be around, you know, season one. Hmm. And we're already in 1990 at this point, November 1990. So best of both worlds for uh, our American friends had been and gone. Uh, whereas here we were just, already, you know, getting bits of season one, I think, on BBC Two. Uh, unless you had Sky, of course. And we've all talked about what Sky was like. But um, yeah, and then um, it carried on going and then it kind of went a bit crazy. It hit around issue... Uh, issue 20 and then it kind of became a general kind of um pro- like, um, like um, a magazine as opposed to just strictly a comic where it'd be more hmm. about you know behind the scenes how how this episode was filmed and interviews with these actors and but it would have you know a, a bit of um one issue of the dc comic in there as well it wouldn't really have the artwork of any of the comics on the front cover in fact most of the run of the marvel transfer of the marvel uh next gen comic it was always like a photo which was in the us dc comic it never had a photo it was always just mm. you know an artwork often by jerome k moore uh the chap i mentioned already so and it finished on the 24th uh, issue 24 on the 4th of january 92 um so pretty short-lived really in the grand scheme yeah. of things but um it was at a point in time where marvel uk was on a bit of a downward spiral um i think comics uh, um I think probably, I don't know what really caused this, but perhaps we were buying more in the UK, buying more of, you know, the actual American 
uh, comics that, are, like I said, I think in one of the episodes, you could get a lot of these American comics in in your news a- local news agent. You didn't really need to go to a specialist. Mm. Although weirdly nowadays, you do have to go to a specialist to get American comics. Um, although you know these days, you can go online, can't you? And there's tons of ways of doing it. But um, and and I think. Um, I think it struggled against the more traditional, um, when I'm talking about Marvel UK in general, struggled against like Beano, Dandy, 2000 AD, the traditional UK, you know, UK-based comics that originated in the UK. Um, and Marvel UK, um, like Transformers, finished in 1991. Uh, actually, that might have been just the very op- uh, first month of 92, I think, was when they did. At that point, it was just reprinting the, um, the US run. And it wasn't writing its own stuff, and they dramatically downsized the the staff um, of Marvel UK generally. And a lot of the license, uh, all, all all it was putting out at this point was licenses like Thundercats and real Ghostbusters um, comics that I used to get as well. The, uh, the Marvel UK versions, um, kind of a novelty now because they're a lot larger than the UK, the US mm. originals. We have them in more like an A4 size. Our comics. Whereas American ones are about a little bit smaller, like um, I think A5, I think is the next one down, isn't it, from A4. Um, so you kind of got the artwork got blown up, uh, basically, for it to fit on our pages. And they're also, you know, it was every week and they were cheaper. So, yeah, um, Marvel UK eventually just became, you know, fairly straightforward reprints of um, whatever, Spider-Man or Captain America. I think it got bought by Panini. Um, and to be honest, these days... Um, it's really when you go into. I mean, obviously you, in Canada, I guess you just have the the you just get the the American Marvel and DC comics in your local kind of you know news agents and those sort yeah. of places. Is that how it is? Yeah, and they're, they're certainly noticeably smaller than the the comics that I grew up with. Uh, but yeah, we've we've got a few stores locally, which is really cool. And I've I've picked up um, just the odd one or two comics here and there they're all published by idw these days they seem to be the the ones with um yes uh, with that license there and yeah. uh so i've had it longer than um they've had it longer on their own than anyone has ever had i think i, I, I think so thousands yeah, yeah, and they've, they've even done some one-shots. I mean, they've been doing it for, like, the original series, Next Gen. They've even got, like, for Discovery, I have a one-shot on Captain Saru. Um, I've also got... Oh, cool. Uh, the Countdown series. Now, the, there's been a couple of them. <laughs> there was Star Trek Countdown, which was for the 2009 uh, movie. Um, and yes. then they also did Quite one cool. based on Nero, uh, which I also have, which is basically Nero's time when he went back in time yeah. and all the struggles he went before the Enterprise arrived. But there was also a Star Trek Picard Countdown. It was three issues, um, which I have, and I still haven't had, ch- had a chance to read through it yet, but it's all basically a, a a prequel to the new Picard show, but probably the favorite one in my collection is from a publisher called Wildstorm. And they did a comic of Star Trek Voyager Elite Force, the video game. And what was really interesting was that they did this in, um, uh, in collaboration with the video game. So they were pulling stuff. So as the game was being produced, they were they were pulling stuff from it to to put into the comic. And there was a couple of uh, cool. times when the writers for the comic had come up with things that the video game guys liked, and uh, so they incorporated that into the game as well. So it's got a little bit of deviation to the game's narrative, but for the most part, it's pretty similar. 
Um, but the artwork style on it is just absolutely fantastic. The, the likenesses for all the characters, both the, the ones that we're familiar with from the game, but also from the show, um, is really good. So, uh, yeah, of, of all the ones that I have, it's probably one of the rarest prints and uh, the, probably the one I enjoy the most, in all honesty. Yeah, I think Wildstorm, um, um, they did sort of a bunch of, one, like you say, a bunch of one-shots and things that spun off from the, the, um, the games. But I think that was kind of an era in that very early 2000s, late, late, very late 90s, when mm. um, Star Trek comics were really on a bit of a downward spiral. Probably, you know, kind of Star Trek franchise was a little bit in, in that mode as well. Um, going into Enterprise and Enterprise getting cancelled. I think when IDW picked it up again, we're kind of in a bit of a golden age again of, um, yeah. of Star Trek comics right now. I think we're still in it, really. Um, but that needs, you know, they've done so much stuff. that They've done more than probably, they've probably caught up to what all the preceding amount of comics that came out, you know, up until the point they got the license. They've done so much. Um, so we need, a, we need really its own episode, you know, perhaps we'll pick up, um, um, one of their series and go through it together and then we can talk about it. Yeah, that'd be interesting. I think it would be. Yeah. I think people would love to hear about that. Uh, but talking of, you know, comic collecting, which we've just covered, we're actually picking up, um, on our long range sensors, the ultimate collector, and it's the Star Trek, the next generation episode, the most toys. So this is season three, episode 22. Um, so... How does this episode start off then, Al? Uh, well, there's a Federation colony, and their water supply has been contaminated. And so the crew of the Enterprise are having to try and neutralize it by procuring something called a hytritium. And they, they go to a trader known as Kivas Fajo. Sounds like a benign backwards. It does, doesn't it? <laughs> Yeah. Which would be which Kivas would be Savage. Well, actually would be. <laughs> so, oh, yes. <laughs> which is a name. If it is a genuine name. Ojaf. Ojaf. Savic Ojaf. That's great. Now we know Savic. Yeah, uh, do we know the, um, her last name now? There we go. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but yeah, this this uh, this high tritium is really unstable. Like it's very dangerous. It's too volatile for transporters, so they have to run it back and forth to the ship in a single shuttle pod, which is interestingly the shuttle pod Pike. So actually named after yeah. Captain Pike. Which, but back then at, at that time, it was kind of known that Pike was the the second captain because there had been the episode of the uh, you know, from the original series where he was featured, but. It, there's a lot more about Pike now, and there wasn't back then, and it was just a nice little touching reference that they, they put in there, I thought. Yeah, all we had up to this point uh, of this episode be airing would have been basically the cage, I mean, and, and the menagerie um, yeah, in the original well, series. Well, yeah, the menagerie was the one I was thinking of. I don't know if the cage had been released at that point. The episode, uh, 7th of May 1990, so I guess the, the VHS release probably would have happened, and maybe they showed it on TV in the States? I'm not sure about the UK. Yeah, and the, the cage came out, at, like, the version that I had, they had some of the episodes, that, sorry, some of the sequences that were in the Menagerie in colour, and then everything else was in black and white. Yes, uh, in fact, um, in terms of when it was shown, because obviously it was a big thing where... Gene Roddenberry would actually take that episode around, wouldn't he, to conventions in the 70s. Mm. Um, and then um, he would actually show it. Um, and that was the only way it, like, anybody saw it in, in those days. Um, it wasn't something that people saw, and it was kind of a lost 
episode. Um, and in terms of when it was shown, the, uh, was, in the US yeah. was 1986. So right. potentially, yes. But not yeah. that I don't think that would have been, everybody saw it on telly, certainly not. It would still have been a fairly obscure, you know, episode, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and having a look at this, the color, the all-color collector's edition was uh, released in the UK in 1990. The version yes. that I had, which is the mixed color and black and white print, there is no release date. The release date is unknown, according to memory alpha. That's crazy. They, yeah, uh, but it came so, out so in the... mixed. So some of it was color and some of it was black and white. Is that what mixed black and white color is? Yes. So you had oh. the um, the scenes that were from the menagerie were in color, and with the voice actors that they used in that for the uh, for the aliens, but then they would go to the original restored Britain. footage, which was black and white, right, yeah. which had different yeah. voiceovers, where the voice was a lot wow. deeper. So, yeah, wow. so the, the, it was this odd kind of back and forth as you're kind of going through. Uh, but that's what I always wow. remember for, uh, as a kid. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's the ep- there, there's all the uh, the fun stuff for the uh, the cage episode already. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody forget this when we do the, uh, the cage episode. <laughs> Uh, but going back to the most toys, we've, we've got a character called Varia, who's um, one of the people working for Fajo. And uh, she wants Data to acknowledge the final load because this is like his third trip that he's making. And she presents a device to him. And it's basically a bit like Touch ID, sort of scanning a, a, a yeah. fingerprint. Yeah, at somewhere it was very explicitly said, I think, that he has fingerprints. Yeah, yeah. otherwise he would have just looked at them and just pointed out like this won't work <laughs> yeah exactly yeah, they can't accept a- apple pay unfortunately yeah. <laughs> <laughs> android is incompatible there we go um yeah <laughs> but, um but he gets electrocuted you know so he's shocked and uh and stuff and, and then it cuts to the shuttle leaving the ship and it suddenly explodes yeah so you've seen that some like Data's probably on it still is probably what you're thinking because you didn't really see anything else happen to him apart from he got knocked knocked unconscious or turned off whatever you want to call it yeah yeah but it's, it's weird because it doesn't yeah because the 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 crew are in shock they are genuinely surprised as a viewer you know that he's probably not there just because he has been kind of attacked and then you just hear his voice over the communications but yeah and, like, and also it, it doesn't very... fit in. Yeah, and a very key point, um, you notice they scan him just before, after they knock him out, and they, they for some reason, they record um, all of the sort of various chemicals and the, and how, and the amounts that, uh, that make up data, um, mm. which you don't really think too much of at the time. Maybe the, And then uh, probably the first thing you think of when he, when he blows up, and if you're really trying to figure things out at this stage, is, oh, they're probably stealing the, what he's made of to sell um, or something. Uh, that's the only thing you could possibly come up with, but a really good teaser, uh, really shocking. Um, mm. You don't know what's going on. Yeah, it, it presents more questions than uh, than it answers, really. Oh yeah, which is how it should be. Yeah. That's kind of the the blueprint for a good teaser, right here. I think <laughs> yeah. it really um, is. <laughs> yeah, and and Vajra starts offering his condolences, and I think that this performance is really good because it, it feels genuine. But it's the genuine condolence you would have for a stranger who's just lost somebody close to them. Where it's like, I've only just met you, I, I you know, and you're telling me that somebody close to you has died. 
I, I, I am very sorry. And there's only so much you can empathize and, uh, you know, when you're, you don't really even know these people. And I think that he just carries that very, very well. I mean, what we have to say, like the chap that plays Kivas Fajo, um, mm. Saul Rubinek is, is the chap. Um, yeah. He's re- really good in this episode. Very, one of the most memorable one-off guest appearances. Um, yeah. And, and not even the know, original actor. Yeah. He, he replaced someone, didn't, didn't he, I think? Yes, he did. Yeah. Uh, there was a, a guy called David Rappaport, uh, who was the original actor, and he actually shot uh, two days. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, they shot on a Thursday and a Friday. And Brent Spiner has kind of talked about this. Uh, there'd been a romance or of some sort that had gone bad. And Rappaport ended up attempting to commit suicide. Oh, God. And uh, yeah, so it was, it was really, really, really bad. Um, and he, he ended up being taken off the project. And he did end up uh, killing himself a little while later, uh, very sadly. Oh my god! But the thing is that the the actor who replaced him did just a marvelous performance. There is, and I'll put the in the show notes, but there is a comparison of the the two performances. And Rappaport's performance is still very good, but yeah, I definitely definitely prefer Ruben X's performance in this. I think it just lands a lot better. Yeah, I mean, he's yeah. I mean, um, I I know. Um, Saul R- Rubinek from a few other things um, as well. I mean, I think a lot of people would remember him from True Romance. He's got quite a big role mm. in that as like a Hollywood mogul that's quite prominent um, in that film. Kind of weirdly very similar um, to um, the character in that, to um, yeah. Kiva Spaggio. Um He's really good at this sl- slimy sort of character. Um, he's in an episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm. Oh, okay. And straight away, as soon as I saw that episode, I said to my girlfriend, that's that's uh, the dude off Next Generation. That's, that's <laughs> And she was like, well, why do you keep telling me actors that are in Star Trek? <laughs> uh, but, but yeah, we I think Trek is, I think we do that, don't we? We get a kick out, out of that. But yeah, yeah. Um, but its performance even in this is great. And this teaser is, well, this first scene is great. You don't really feel like he's, like he's lying. He's very, very good, very mm. subtle. That's what I mean. It's, it comes across very genuine for it. Yeah, yeah. But he even points out that, like, hydritium is rare and it's dangerous. And, you know, he's using the the shuttle pod accident as a perfect example and saying that, you know, he might even just stop selling it because it's not worth the risk. And they've taken the entire supply that he has. The nearest other supply is about three weeks away. So if they need more, they're not going to be able to come back to him which is a very... It really establishes... Yeah, which is a very good setup that he's made. He's kidnapped Data, and he's trying to make sure that there's no reason for them to come back to him for more. It's pretty uh, severe and established quite clearly there, yeah. In a very good way, you know, they haven't really... I'm not really feeling I'm missing any information. I didn't need to start some headcanon to fill in any gaps. (laughs) Um, You know, the the dreaded headcanon. So, yeah... um, Straight simple, really. Just simple. Mm. Um, you can't really poke holes through any of this. Yeah. And then Data suddenly comes to, so obviously he's been uh, disabled. He's now reactivated uh, on this sort of round red sofa and does not have his combat with him. Still in his uniform, just no combat. And Fajo comes in and really just kind of 
expresses just how impressed he is with data. Not from a personality standpoint, just physically. Not not because of his body, but more just <laughs> the way that he's constructed, I should say. Um, and, yeah. you know, kind of points out that he's been brought here for his enjoyment and his appreciation. Which is very weird. Like, if, if you were a person and somebody was in that, you'd be like, is, is this, like... Is this how do I lose a kidney or like he's a cool like action figure? Yeah, yeah, like, like yes, he's got, he's got yeah. really cool, really cool action figure. He doesn't really... all these different points of articulation, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, Re- like like look at the, the you know realistic fabric uniform this action figure has and all that sort of stuff. It's <laughs> very like he's just a mannequin, really. You know that that's basically how how he sort of addresses him, isn't it? Mm. Um, and mm. he sort of when he talks back to him, he's just uh, it's like someone using Siri for the first time, really. He gets very, very excited and, and giddy about it. Um, <laughs> like, you know, so he doesn't really see Data as a, as a human, as a, well, anything like a human being at all, which isn't, which is very disturbing to see for some, when you're watching it and knowing that, you know, how much he's had to fight to get acceptance in this sort of, you know, as, yeah. as, a, as a sentient being, you know, there's a whole like measure of a man, there's a whole episode about that. So, yeah. Yeah, um, and we have had a whole season of Pulaski not really treating him very well yeah, either. Exactly, exactly. But yeah, and then um, Gator then expresses, understandably, his wish to leave, uh, which is denied. Uh, so he is then obviously forced to escape, but he can't actually get through the door. This door's strong enough to, that Data can't open it. And Fajo has a proximity-actuated field. So basically... a, a personal uh, force field. So Data can't even just grab Fajo to use him to open the door either. Uh, and I, I like that he kind of puts in this throwaway line of that it impedes the positron flow, which means it's basically bad for Data's positronic brain. Yeah, so... So it's specifically there for Data and to stop him. And it kind of makes it clear that um, Kivas has been planning this for specifically for Data. Mm. So the plot thickens is probably the phrase that, like, that fits this a little bit. Um, <laughs> yeah. You wouldn't no one people just don't just hang around with you know positronic you know disruptive force fields, do, do they? Mm. By accident, you know, it's it's something that you're gonna you know you you know you're going after basically data, really. Yeah. Um, for you to have that in your possession, yeah, yeah. But he's really impressed with the interactivity with data to the point that he probably does something that he's never done with any of his collection before and that's show his collection to the rest of his collection uh so he's going through and he's showing like paintings he's showing vases and then probably one of the the prides that he's had up until now has been a 1962 roger maris baseball card so a player for the new york yankees and the only thing i know about him is because of this episode (laughs) i would never have heard it because you know uk baseball not a mix I think that was a big thing. Um, I think Michael Pillar um, was a big baseball fan. So I think um, he was already working on the show at this point, wasn't he? I think in the yeah. fourth, in the third se- season. So any time, any chance he got, he put a baseball um, reference in. Yeah, and he started collecting baseball cards after this episode. This kind of, I think, kick-started that for him. What, for Michael Pillar? Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow, cool. I mean, I, I quite like baseball. I'm, I'm a fan of baseball. Uh, I mean, I, my, my team is the New York Mets, so I don't, don't really like the Yankees. Uh, so <laughs> I, I don't really... Uh, I'd rather it was a Mets card in there because I, I would have got a kick, kick out of that. But, um, 
But yeah, it's kind of cool seeing this reference yeah. in there. But it's it's the last, like the only one that still exists. And he's even gone as far as preserving the scent of bubblegum in it. Now, I'm going to go slightly off topic here uh, because I actually have something called the Fajo Collection. Decipher made a card game called Star Trek, the customizable card game, and they released a special set with a bunch of different cards. It came in a book binder thing, and it's got a lot of stuff in there, including Dixon Hill's uh, business card. But it's also got, for playing in this game, an artifact card, which is the Roger Maris baseball card. And the idea is that you can use it to trade with another player's artifact card because you get artifacts wow. which give you different abilities and stuff. So they actually went and, and did that. And right behind it, they have included real bubblegum. Yes, that's really cool. Now, I, I went, I opened it up just to think, like, is it still, like, can you still smell it? Um, it's sealed in... Um, in plastic, and I cannot smell the bubblegum at all. I'm pretty sure, now memory being what it is, I'm pretty sure that you could smell it originally. I think I, it's just not possible now, and I'm certainly not going to open it to try and try it, because that is very old bubblegum. <laughs> yeah. It must be like at least 20 years old. It's at least 20 years old now. It's something that Ashens probably would be able to do on his YouTube <laughs> channel. But, uh, yeah. yeah so, we're not infringing uh, on that. Yeah, but I, I do like that as part of my collection, having the Fajo collection as, as part of that. It's, it's kind of, it's, it was a neat uh, idea. Yeah, and like funny enough, like obviously baseball cards, there's an entire Deep Space Nine episode about uh, yeah. getting a baseball card. I did check if it was the same one. It isn't. But I did just mention that I'm a New York Mets fan, and uh, the card that they get in the Deep Space Nine, the episode's called In the Cards. Again, we're not gonna, we won't yeah. talk about it now, because obviously we'll have an episode, I'm sure. But um, that that dude, uh, Willie Mays, the 1951 mm. Willie Mays bookie baseball card, he would go on to play for the New York Mets. So that some ways um, helps the injustice of no New York Mets um, references <laughs> in other episodes <laughs> that have baseball in. But yeah, it's very cool. A really, really cool. Mm. Uh, we also find that he's got a creature that's the last of its species. So you start to realize that everything in the collection is a one of a kind. And so now yep. Data is like his most prized possession. And that's that's all he cares about. Not just having something that's rare. He wants just something where it's the only one left. But It looks that... crap as well. The, the lapling, isn't it? It looks crap. It looks like something from Red Dwarf. Like, like <laughs> it's just, it's just a hand puppet. Effectively. Yeah, really, 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 obviously. Um, I'm not slagging off the production team, um, but I can imagine this was that was a last minute thing. You know, like, we need some kind of little little alien pet. Like, oh, for God's sake, we've done everything. We've got this baseball card. We've got, just put, okay, just make something. <laughs> like, all right, fine. And they made this puppet. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it does show that it, like, even life isn't off the cards for being part of the yeah. collection. Like, he, he, d he doesn't care whether, even if it's alive and it's endangered. Yeah, he doesn't care. Yeah, yeah. So... Um, I, I do love, and again, this just goes back to his performance. I do love how angry and frustrated he is when the Andorians, like just at their timing for trying to sort out part of their trade deal. Because he's kind of in the middle of trying to do all this stuff with data. And he's just, he, he's angry, he's frustrated, and he just storms out and goes, fine, well, okay, we'll deal with the Andorians. And it really uh, it sort of establishes a wider sort of universe around Kivas Fajo that, He's obviously some kind of trader, and it's um, yeah, it, like in, in dodgy stuff, like almost like a pirate, mm. um, you would say, really. And of course, we don't see the Andorians in Next Generation either. 
Yeah. And in fact, we don't see really, apart from a cargo bay in this room, we don't see anything of, of, of uh, Kiva Sparger's wider kind of ship, mm. um, which you don't really, really realise, you know, um, even when you get to the end of it. It's, but you don't need to. It's just really well done. It's got yeah. a bottle well, the shape, idea is you're kind of trapped in there just like Data is effectively. Yeah, so, you feel it, yeah. Yeah. I, I do like when it goes back to the Enterprise, though, and you've got Geordie and Wesley who are kind of talking about the, the loss of Data and how they always thought that he would outlive them. And they're looking through, they're looking at a painting of his. They've got a book uh, that Picard gave him, a, a book on Shakespeare. And then they stumble upon a display box with a bunch of medals, which they regard as Starfleet's highest honors. And just really goes to show just what Data's abilities are. And, and again, kind of like you were saying before with Measure of a Man, like everything that he's gone through, the fact that he's managed to get some of Starfleet's highest honors that most normal people wouldn't be able to get. Yeah, but it's also like interesting that, I mean, uh, age-wise, I mean, how old is he, like... 28 29 i think mm. um by this episode i don't think he's even like 30 so to get that stuff at this relatively young age mm. um is pretty impressive i don't i don't think it's ever um um established what he did to get this stuff i mean but you can believe it you know because of his abilities yeah. um yeah. he'll be able to do it but it'll be interesting to see you know obviously his former you know um whatever ships he was on up until this point i mean he's a lieutenant mm. commander so that's fair fairly well experienced um yeah. Starfleet officer really um but yeah it really adds some weight to um to, to data's career and his life and just what a good all-round person that he is yeah mm. you feel quite emotional actually you know he's not dead but it just makes you more angry that god they can find him they just need to start fire looking for him um, yeah it really helps with that emotion yeah and, and i like that geordie's looking at it like a technical problem because he's kind of thinking through like the data would have been going through everything step by step by protocol. And he's thinking through the whole departure sequence and he can't understand like if data does all this stuff perfectly, what went wrong? And he can't figure out what it is that he's missing. And it's just a very technical approach of just kind of just systematically going through. It's like a nagging sort of feeling that he has. Um, yeah. Because I don't think there's anything blaringly obvious that would suggest there's something fishy going on, really. Is mm. there? Um, no. I, I think it's just Geordie's just... I mean, if he wasn't friends with him, um, as, as close as he is, I mean, it's well established at this point that um, Geordie and Data are, are quite close friends. I don't think anybody would really have had a huge reason to go into a, a more investigation than would have been done, you know... Um, it seemed fairly quick that they were satisfied it was an accident, you know, and um, that's probably all it was. Yeah, but Jordy doesn't even accept that it's pilot error. You know, Picard and Riker yeah. are obviously kind of going down that route, and Picard is being supportive, but I think he's also just worried that Jordy's just going to lead himself down a path where he's not going to be able to perform his duties. Yeah, it's really, I guess that is the key, isn't it? The fact that Jordy probably knows better than anyone that he wouldn't make an error. Um, which leaves it either someone, well, in his eyes, I guess someone blew up the ship or there was mm. some catastrophic system failure, but there's nothing to suggest that either. But even so, it's only really Geordie that really is seeing it that, that way. Perhaps Picard yeah. and Riker should be really be, be seeing that. So, yeah, but frustrating for you as the viewer that, he, that um, you know, he's the only one that's really looks like he'll be equipped to 
work out this mystery at the moment or even to mm. try and work it out. Yeah, we've also got another dilemma going on because we've got Vario and Data are kind of, I, I, th I think they're like alone for the first time. And Vario just has no moral dilemma with any of this situation. So Data's kind of questioning what side she's on. And there's a whole discussion about loyalty. And uh, she kind of indicates that she's been injured before as, as punishment. Yeah, very clearly, the body language. Yeah. Yeah, so she's been punished and uh, and is really as much of a victim, uh, you know. Even though she's kind of looks like his sidekick, it's it's pretty clear that that's not really the case. Which again establishes a wider thing is probably the entire crew to an extent are probably kind of slaves, in in a way, mm. or people he's just captured. Um, yeah, I mean he gave some background uh, to it, but how he you know met her, but um, yeah, um, so you kind of feel like. And Data makes a great point where, you know, um, Varia's like, um, well, I guess you're, you're stuck here with us. Um, and um, Data says, well, so are you, really. You're, you're stuck here. We're all st stuck here. We're all pr prisoners, effectively. And a certain mm. sort of, I wouldn't say the stakes have changed, but perhaps you as the viewer kind of see, well, he's potentially got a, you couldn't see a way out for him up, up mm. to this point, but perhaps he can get through to her. Um, and you know, that might be, um, Varian might be a way out, but it's still quite early to really think how that would work. Yeah. And, and then we start to see a lot of the manipulation start to kick in from Fajo as well. Cause he's, he's wanting data to get out of the Starfleet uniform because he's no longer in Starfleet and he's, he's trying to encourage him to change into these clothes and basically do as he says. And Although Data kind of commends him on how good he is at debating, Data is obviously just like, I'm still not going to do this. So Fajr just replicates something acidic and throws it on Data, and it starts to dissolve his uniform. It's obviously designed not to, to injure Data, but the entire uniform dissolves, and he's basically like, you're either going to be wearing those clothes or you're going to be naked. And you can decide which alternative you dislike the least. Yeah. And then just walks out and just leaves Data to to ponder his options. It's funny because up to this point, like Kivas Fajo is almost reminiscent of like an original series villain, kind of mm. funny looking and jolly and doesn't look particularly threatening, like physically, almost like a Harry Mudd or like, uh, but now they show in signs of being actually sadistic. I mean, yeah. we already know that maybe he's mistreated Varia, like in a very violent ways, potentially. Uh, and now he's happy to chuck acid on, you know, on someone. Um, so, yeah, like, you're kind of feeling like, God, this guy is kind of dangerous. <laughs> you're starting to really worry about what could happen to, to Data if he continues to, um, you know, defy him, mm. basically. I like that Jordy starts catching up on rest as, as Picard kind of ordered him to as well. And as he's kind of sleeping, he's playing back the audio recordings in his head. Like, that's what he's dreaming about. And um, it, when it gets to saying about how level one precautions remain in effect, only he wakes up and realizes that he did miss something. We still don't know what that thing is. <laughs> like, we hear yeah. those, but uh, so he's a step ahead of the, the we are, but we're also a step ahead from him. So, which is kind of an interesting dynamic as a, as a viewer. Uh, but then we switch over to Worf and Troy. And I think that this is quite an interesting conversation that they have. Because Worf has just been 
chosen as data's replacement for ops. And he's, he mentions how like he served in ops before, which he has, because in season one, if Data wasn't on the bridge or Geordie wasn't on the bridge, then he would take that station back when he was part yes. of the command division. So it's yeah. not, it, it makes sense as to why he would be chosen for that. But it's also pointed out that he's been promoted twice now and both times are due to a crewmate being killed. Yeah, and you could see, you know, when Deanna's sort of sensing that he's, he's not, you know, his normal self. And I think mm. Michael Dorn is a brilliant actor. Um, yeah. And you can sense it in him, um, even though he's not overly, you know, he's not crying or anything. Or, f- mm. But he just seems, I mean, he looks like he's moping around at the better times, but he looks like he's moping around just a little bit more than the normal. And Michael Dorn's able to, to portray that really, you know, subtly. Um, because he has to, because Klingons are, you yeah. know, very dramatic in many ways. But yeah, it shows that he's not like any, any ordinary Klingon. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, when you go by what he says, he's saying that he's, you know, this is no different to what it would be like on a Klingon ship. That's how you get promoted. And yeah. that he would be doing this role with honor of Data's memory, just as he did with Yar when he took over as chief of security. Um, so based on what he's saying, you don't think there are those issues. But Troy obviously just sees all the way through that, as you said. Well, I think the fact that Troy says, well, he, he was your friend, you know, and your friend has died, just like Tasha was. Um, yeah. it, it's, it will affect you on a different level, and it has, I think. And he's well, was quite sad, I think, isn't he, about the whole situation? Yeah. Whereas on a Klingon ship, you probably would end up murdering the person that you want to, whose job you want to take. So there's yeah. a different, completely different emotion for that. Um, so yeah, but again, Michael Dorn's great at just showing that subtle, you know, change in demeanor, I think. Mm. We then have Geordie and, uh, and Wesley and Wesley, uh, finally gets filled in with what's happening. So we, we get to know what's going through Geordie's mind because Geordie is listening through to the recordings with Wesley and they realize that data didn't relay the procedure. Like he went through every single step, things that people normally just wouldn't bother because everything's on sensors anyway. But he still yeah. goes through everything the first two times. And on the third time, he doesn't. And they point out that that's just very unlike data. And that's when they realize that they need to speak with Vario and those that were down there because they're effectively the last person who saw him alive. It goes to show that... Um... You know, only someone like Geordie would really notice. I mean, with data is so perfect to everything. There's not mm. really big glaring, like, like, like obvious things that you could hear in a recording. It's literally like a slight change in how he says something or if he misses one minor, minor detail. Um, yeah. That is the only possible clues that you would get that would probably go over most people's heads. And it takes someone... I mean, Geordie's a brilliant um, engineer anyway, so he's got attention to detail, but his relationship with data has given him that, that extra, you know, sense of what if something's off specifically yeah. related to data and it's kind of, you know, paying off for it really with him being able to analyze this evidence and see it in a different way that other people wouldn't, they wouldn't pick up on that unless they knew him as well as Geordie did. So, yeah. Plus he would be seeing it as like, if the enterprise didn't perform a function that it was supposed to, he'd be like, well, what the hell went wrong? this is a computer and it's not done something that it's supposed to. And so that's where his mind always is as an engineer. So to see that with data, absolutely. Yeah. 
Um, yeah. I, I like that Fajo brings in Paula Toff, who is just, it's just, it's the most amazing um, kind of makeup. costume design. <laughs> makeup, yeah, where it's basically like yeah. this metal thing that just kind of goes out of his nose and it like curls around his head and goes into his ear or something like that. Yeah. It's a really bizarre look. Very alien. And I can't tell. Yeah. It's more impressive than like Varia, really. It doesn't really look, mm. look, it just looks like someone that um, that's, looks like from the Real Housewives of Cheshire or something who's had a bad facelift. <laughs> but, um, but this dude, like, I, I can't tell if that gold, like, shard of metal is part of what his race has on their face naturally or if it's a decoration, like an earring or, or, or something. I feel so like it's decorative. really cool. Yeah, I think it probably is. But a really interesting way of portraying. Like an, like an alien, you know, decorative mm. thing. Like, um, really cool, cool design um, on, on that dude, yeah. Yeah, and, and, it, and Toph is obviously some trader with some prominence uh, and stature. And Fragile is glad that Dato has changed because he's, he's finally gone into this other clothing rather than just standing there naked. But he doesn't respond at all. And so Toph just thinks that he's a, ma- a mannequin. And, yep. and, yeah. Uh, and I just love Fajo again, just getting really frustrated, saying, you know, I demand you behave normally, uh, and eventually pushes him over. And Data just falls, again, doesn't move. He's just as stiff as a board. And Toph's just like, well, he falls well. <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, and then, of course, leans into Data and just says, you'll regret this. And, and, and so again, it's that, that seedy, sadistic uh, nature behind him where you know that uh, he's angry, but he, he, there's going to be penance to pay. It just shows how logical data is as well, because, uh, you know, um, he obviously knows he can't really do anything by force, even though he sort of says earlier in the episode that he's mm-hmm. happy to use that his program to use deadly force to, you know, um, to, for self in the, in self preservation. Um, mm-hmm. but he obviously can't do that. So this is the only thing he can do is really a form of non, non-violent or non-reactive protest, really. Yeah. yeah um, not not yeah. going to entertain the guests. Yeah, exactly. Not going to give him what he wants, basically, yeah. and just be, be, make it more frustrating for Kivas. Yeah, I, I I love Picard's response when they finally arrive in orbit of the the planet that they've been trying to get to, and he he just accidentally slips up and just says, "Mr. Data, scan," and then stops himself. <laughs> yeah, and then yeah. apologizes to Worf. Yeah, who doesn't say anything? He's being very polite, but yeah, that that would be like Picard. I'd be like, oh. It's just that one, one idiot. Just, it's just really sort of hammering in, like this is not a change we're used to or expecting. And the date is basically part of the furniture by the, um, at this point. So yeah, yeah. Um, but th- but then we get a new mystery that unfolds because they launch the probe to try and remove the contamination, but it's working too well. It's happening a lot quicker, and um, there's something it's something like triserenite or something like that that's uh, that's on the planet and there's usually higher levels than they would expect from it yeah so uh, then they all decide to kind of beam down and try and figure out what's happening um and, and then it cuts back to a brilliant shot of data on Fajo's ship trying to like he's, he's just morphing his face and at first you're like well, what is he trying to do exactly he's, he's obviously practicing expressions and then it <laughs> camera flips around and the mona lisa is on the wall and he's basically trying to mimic mona lisa yeah i mean he's basically got nothing to do in this room he, uh kivas fadra wasn't giving him anything to entertain him 
you know, um, he's literally in a prison for all intents and purposes, really, uh, but mm. constantly. So I guess he's just trying to amuse himself. So, yeah, he's doing that by... And that's such a data thing to do, isn't it? Practicing that's it, exactly. Mining, yeah. you know, yeah. It's a great little... But Brent Spiner's brilliant at these, you know, they're so funny and they're so... And it's just, it's it's a it's a it's a weird moment of like like jovial moment in what is otherwise a very dark episode. Hmm. Um, Star Trek's good at that, putting these little nuggets of you know of bits that kind of help lift the mood a little bit without ruining anything or changing the tone. Hmm. Um, yeah, it's a fun fun little moment that's literally been and gone in a matter of seconds, but it's great. In a way, you need that levity for what's to come because you we have this quite humorous thing, and then Fajo comes in. And this is where things get really, really dark very, very quickly because he's yeah. trying to appeal to Data to just comply and and he sets the bar for what he wants to do, which is he wants Data to sit on the chair. And it's very similar to David Warner's performance when he's basically trying to tell Picard, you know, ha, you know tell me how many lights there are. It's that same yeah, kind yeah. of manipulation tactic. Yeah, and he, he insists that you know you will be sitting on that chair, and then he goes and he grabs from the safe a disruptor prototype. There's only five in existence, and he has all of them, and they're banned by the Federation because of how painful a death it is. It's not a quick death; it kind of you kind of disintegrating from the inside out, and uh, that's when he then brings in Varia. We find out they've been together what fourteen years now. Yeah, and when she was a child, or like he was, he was like an orphan or something, is what they're alluding to. Yeah, and he yeah. Kind of saved her. Yeah, yeah it certainly, it certainly comes across like at least teenager. Yeah, you know, kind of age, and uh, yeah, and it just almost without hesitation sort of sits her down, sort of talks about how they've had their fourteen years, and then just pulls the gun, the disruptor, on her, and he's just about to shoot her, and it doesn't seem like there's like a, he's not th- like. Um, hesitating at all it's just straight up he's just going to do it and then we just hear data off camera say fajo and you look over and data is sat on the chair yeah so so manipulation wise he's won yeah yeah um and it's it's kind of you're you're kind of like demoralized and your heart sinks for data because you think what's he what can he do um and like yeah, i said he's broken like, data effectively yeah, um, and it adds more layers to this Kivas Fajo character. I mean, like I said, he's getting more and more sadistic, and this is like really—he's clearly a sociopath, like a dangerous one as well. Mm. Um, he's not this jolly like original series era character that collects relics and is kind of all fun and weird, and he'll just be do weird stuff that we'll laugh at, and Data will somehow escape in a funny way. Um, mm. No, he's like genuinely like a like an actual like psychopath. Um, and you feel bad for uh, Varia now is like uh, a victim just as much as Data. We kind of yeah. established that a little bit already earlier, but now we literally see that it's almost like, unfortunately, like a, an, an abused spouse uh, relationship, which is well, obviously horrible. Um, and um, she's kind of broken as well, probably, mm. as are probably the rest of the crew. Um, it's just like a hostage ship, really. And the idea of the weapon is the way it's described sounds horrible. I mean, like you get shot with it and then it's not like a phaser which probably painlessly just vaporizes you within a millisecond. You don't you don't get to feel any pain or anything. This mm. is literally like, you know, eats you out from the inside and all of your pain receptors are absolutely just exploding um, in pain. It sounds horrendous and you don't really see it or, or anything. 
but you um it may, it's kind of the stuff that horror that horror is made of just the, just the description yeah and, yeah and the fact that like the the federation would be using weapons for self defense and stuff and they're like this weapon is too much there is nothing out there that we want to defend ourselves this badly that it really like the stakes have increased dramatically now just from that act so yeah we then joined the away team and they found that the contamination is not natural the entire thing's been sabotaged and one of the things i, I noticed because i was looking at the cave i think just because we're kind of analyzing these episodes a lot more than just a casual viewing yeah that cave set has been used many many times where it's got like a pool in the middle and I'm, there's like the episode in Deep Space Nine where Odo has this kind of deep throat informant that's kind of up on the shadows. I'm pretty sure that's that set there. Um, I think when, when we've been on like um, like like the Trill sort of um, where they have like like the symbionts live in a little bath yeah. thing. Maybe there's an expanded version of the same set. Um, the episode um, where yeah, uh, Picard goes up undercover. You know the we are. Uh, there are four lights. Um, that one, I think there's obviously a lot of cave <laughs> sequence in that. Um, I think loads of episodes of Deep Space Nine when they're in. There are a lot of caves yeah. in Deep Space Nine. Maybe the one yeah. where um, Cisco and, and uh, Ducat are on that planet together uh, when Cisco's injured. The, um, I can't remember, is it Thine Own Self? No, not Thine Own Self. I can't remember the name of the episode. But yeah, that one. Yeah, basically lots of cave. There's a lot, there's a lot of cave episodes in Star Trek. They love a cave. They do love a cave. Yeah. And because this was from season three, I think this might be one of the, possibly one of the longest running planet sets. So I, I feel like every time yeah. I watch a, an episode featuring a cave, I'm going to be looking out like, is it that one? Is it that multi-layered one? Because there's like, there's like three tiers of that cave. Yeah. I think it's been used, it was used in Enterprise as a few, again, cave-based sets in that. I think it could well have been the same one that, and that's like, you know, um, 12, 13 years later than, than when this episode would have been filmed. So yeah. I feel um, like we're going to end up with a, a new segment in this podcast this week on Cave Watch. Yeah, it's going to be up there with those two those two red glowing bars you know, from Star Trek Two that appear in every science st station. Yeah. Like, or, you know. So yeah, <laughs> I'm going to point that out when 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 those two glowing bars keep turning up because they're really important to Star Trek history as far as I'm concerned. So yeah, that's it. <laughs> um, but it's enough anyway for them to piece together that uh, that. Data's likely being kidnapped, so the hunt for Fargo begins. They've been sent on a wild goose chase, basically, yeah. with this like, or this uh, high high tritium, whatever it was called. Um, yeah. It looks, and they've kind of the penny drops at this point. Yeah, yeah, and and Varia has finally changed her tune. I think she's, you know, like you were saying before, with all the kind of abuse she's gone through. I think she's finally kind of come to the realization that one, she wants out, and two, Data is probably her only chance as well. Data, I think he's he's trying to open the safe at this point, I think. And in her 14 years, she's already knows what the combination of that safe is. She's able to open that door. So in all this time, she's been able to grab one of those weapons and still hasn't been able to try and escape, which is kind of interesting. But again, that's all down to the abuse that she's been suffering, I think. Yeah, I mean, Data basically doesn't have to do very much, really, does he? Apart from just talk talk to her, she probably hasn't really yeah. spoken to anyone really about this stuff. Um, yeah. And I can't imagine, like, you know, it took an android really to be kidnapped to give her a way out. Um, and yeah. she has this realization, yeah, uh, um, at this point, yeah. I I think as well, just seeing that 
14 years and no remorse that he was just absolutely just going to kill her. There, there was no doubt about it. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it suggests that uh, it, perhaps he hasn't got that far with her, but like literally, you know, pointed a gun at her. Maybe, maybe he has in the past and that was just the straw that broke the camel's back, but it also makes her realise that she's probably going to die in some at some point because yeah. he's going to get uh, annoyed at her or something. So this is kind of, you know, she might as well get, get, die trying to escape. At least it'll be over one way or another. It's a horrible realisation to have to make, but mm. uh, data is probably the only way out she's going to have anytime soon. Yeah, she's, she's in a horrible situation herself. So they, they get down to the shuttle bay. And uh, a guy comes in and a fight ensues between him and Varia. And then another guy comes in. So we've got a, a couple of crewmen. Then Fajo finally appears. And it's this very interesting silent standoff. Because they're looking down. There's a disruptor on the floor. He's got a disruptor in hand. There's very much kind of a stalemate like, will you, won't you, will I, won't I kind of thing going on. And... Fajo kind of looks like he's going to kill her and then he kind of points the disruptor away and then within a split second he swings it straight back and just shoots her. And that yeah. description of it disintegrating from the inside out, we see it. Like, it happens. Yeah, I mean, it's a great moment as well. She sort of dives for the gun. She can't get to it. I think she thought she'd be able to grab it and shoot him, but she just uh, is full short. And then she gets up and she kind of looks at him and says, Look, you, you, you won't kill me because, you know, you, you love me or something. In mm. a really emotional like moment, um, it only lasts a few seconds, but you think maybe for a second uh, Fajo might change his mind and just like, you know, take a prisoner or something. But no, he just shoots her. Yeah. And you've kind of warmed to Varia at this point um, because she's clearly a victim as well. Yeah. Um, and yeah, like you say, you see this, what was described horribly earlier, what it can do to you. You see it in action and it's... Uh, it is disturbing. I mean, it's not gory or anything, mm. but uh, the actress that plays uh, Varia, she really sells it and she just screams and it's just like, it's kind of painful to watch. And it's like, Jane Daly is the name of the actress, but she again, she's another great, a great guest star in, in this episode. Um, she does a mm. really good job of making you like see this horrendous weapon, you know, do its thing. Especially when she's the one who... Uh, incapacitated data right at the beginning. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it adds like, uh, so I've got that layer to it, but the special effect isn't over the top either, but works. Mm. It's not like a big, you know, like now you'd go nuts with it, I suppose, and have like, it would zoom into her body and show her DNA breaking down. It's just like her, a very slow, like she's being, looks like she's being vaporized by a phaser, but really slowly and the actor's before, mm. the actress's performance is just heartbreaking, really. Um, so yeah, yeah like, a, and again, you think this guy is an uh, absolute nutter and genuinely scary. And he goes into full-blown manipulation mode because he starts oh, yeah. basically victim-shaming him, saying, like, this is your fault, all this disobedience. And, uh, and he even kind of goes, oh, there's always another barrier because he likes things where there's just one thing and for him, she's just worthless. In that regard, yeah, anything that's more, that can be that can be bought again is, or anything that's got more than one that isn't unique is pointless, and he is completely remorseless and ambivalent uh, to mm. them to the point where he will happily, cold-bloodedly kill someone. Um, yeah. yeah, it's horrible. <laughs> and and just kind of like he did with the uh, with the acid and giving like the two alternatives, um, he's kind of calling Data's bluff because he he's convinced Data won't hurt him because Data by his own admission, 
respects all life. And he kind of says, you, you know, you could murder me or you can choose not to. And then we just go back to the room and, and continue as we do before. And it's, it's all you have to do. Those are your only options. And he'll, he'll, he'll kill another crew mem- mem- member. So, yeah. Yeah. And he's even pointing out, like, Data can't feel rage. He can't feel the need for revenge about what's happened to Varia. So, you know, where, what would be the point in, in this murder? Uh, but Data has that just that very sudden, like you see a change in his face and he just says, I cannot permit this to continue because it will never end. If there's other Varias, it's just going to keep happening to them as well. And just as he's about to shoot, that's when he's beamed up. So the Enterprise detects him, beams him out of there. And O'Brien realizes that a weapon has been discharged. They're able to disable that, remove that from the matter stream. Yeah. So we know that he pulled the trigger. Yeah, so he was, um, he was basically would have killed him. He would have killed uh, Kiva Svajov. It was a split second later. Yeah. Um, yeah, and but you can... S- it's it's an awful decision that Data had to make, but you can see how um, he would have come. That would have been his programming of self-preservation and also to protect others, almost yeah. like an, a need to the many outweigh the needs of the few. Um, the only way to kill the vicious cycle of Kivas Fajo just killing pe- people remorselessly is to probably kill him. You know, yeah. they're on the ship in the middle of nowhere. Data doesn't know he's about to be rescued. If you're in that situation, you probably would have done the same, you know? Yeah, and we know that data's not like the binars, where the binars have like a there's only two options, yes or no, and yeah. those are the only options that he's been given by Fajo. But we know that data will go through every possible option, every possible scenario. So we know that he's figured out that this is the only way to keep people safe. But I do like that Riker points out that the uh, disruptor had been discharged. And Data's response is that perhaps something occurred during transport, Commander. Well, that's a lie. Uh, yeah, yeah. And there, there's there's a very little, little like interesting few moments where Data, where Riker kind of looks at him, doesn't say anything, just looks at him like, "Are you sure about that?" And Data kind of <laughs> Data gives him like a double take. Again, really. Again, these actors are get way more no no near enough credit they should. But you can see that Riker probably knows that. You, you had to do something kind of awful. Uh, I don't really want to put, pin you down and ask you about it, but I think you did. And Data <laughs> says, uh, I think you know, I kind of had to. Could we just not talk about it? <laughs> Let's not have this um, go on the record. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of chilling, a little kind mm. of a chilling moment for Data and Riker as well, but it didn't, nothing needed to be said. It was just great performance in that yeah. few seconds of just them them interacting after he beams aboard. It's arguably the most human that he's been up until this point as well. Like it, it almost feels like the first signs that he really can break that programming. Like we've seen him sort of wanting to be human and trying to learn. This feels more like he's evolving beyond that. It's, I think yeah. it's the first time you, you get that evolutionary sense from that. Yeah. Definitely. Uh, and then we kind of come to the, the very last scene, which is Fajo in the brig and not at all happy at the fact that his role's been reversed and refers to Data as the collector now and that he's the one in the cage. Yeah, very smug, still not really showing any remorse um, at all. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I feel like he thinks he's going to get out of it. 
it almost yeah. comes across that way like th- like this is just temporary roles will be reversed soon um well, i've been in this situation before probably probably has and got yeah. out yeah yeah and then data informs in that the entire collection has been confiscated and everything that was stolen has been returned to their rightful owners so I- i've got a feeling that Fajr probably had like a-, a-, a list of everyone that he stole each item from you know because obviously a collector yeah. would have like an itemized thing, right? Yeah. But I I love that he just looks at Data and says, it must give you great pleasure. Then Data just says, no, sir, it does not. I do not feel pleasure. I am only an android. He drops the mic and he walks away. Yeah. It's a, it's a great end, yeah, to the episode. Yeah. And the look on Fajo, I think if Data actually had that pleasure, that there was that kind of... You, you know that almost revenge and stuff the fact that that's not there and it's completely empty and data isn't going to think twice about it that seems to hurt him more it's almost the the, the like data got a kind of a victory over him finally at the end because mm. he didn't really give Fajr what he wanted uh, like you said yeah i think you're sort of alluding to this but i think Fajr feels like he would get some kind of perverse pleasure out of data being a bit like, yeah, screw you, I've got you banged up now, ha, 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 ha. Because mm. then he could probably come back with, well, I get out, I'm going to get out, and you'll, you'll be my collection again or something. But he doesn't really give him that that satisfaction, and he just walks yeah. out. So, yeah. And you've made me actually think of something as well, which is that he's been trying to change data all this time. He's trying to put data in a situation that he normally wouldn't be, and turning data into a killer i think he would have felt pleasure himself to know that he was responsible for data getting pleasure from all of this and perhaps going on to do other stuff and then just realizing that's not the case yeah like he has had no power or control over him and he's just lost all of that there's nothing there yeah and um he just walks out like you said mic drops and you just finish on a a shot of fagio just you know, looking pretty down in in the brig, and that's the end of the episode. Not no no big, um, you know, everybody high fiving on the bridge. Hey, we got data back, guys. Just a, a very solemn end mm. to, to the episode. I mean, you feel relieved that data got out of the situation. You feel, I guess, re- like relief more is probably the best emotion. You don't really feel like mm. jolly about it. People have kind of died, and you feel bad for Varia, who you kind of ended up caring for in the end, that she's dead. You don't really feel like satisfied with Kivas Fajo's like demise, really, because he's still alive, you know. Yeah, but the list Um, of crimes that uh, has been brought against him, he's not getting out anytime ever. (laughs) Yeah, you would hope, but um, even just for having those weapons, exactly. The fact that he also murdered somebody with them and all the theft and everything else. Yeah, but I think this is an episode which is just full of some great understated performances as you were saying and there's so much subtext and subtlety and really just highlights everything that isn't said yeah and all the manipulation and things like i I think everybody kind of goes to uh you know the, the whole scene with the four lights and picard being broken because that is in itself a terrific terrific scene yeah and very dark and manipulative this is still this is kind of a similar approach but n- not as blatantly dark while still being as sinister yeah it was kind of um you know a good the, the how these sort of episodes were still developing i think these darker toned ones and this is an mm. early example of that i think 
So, yeah, you can see where the path led them. Yeah. And the only sort of perhaps niggling thing I would put against the episode was it took for the pieces to fall together, for the crew on the Enterprise working out what happened, happened a bit too quick for me. Uh, I mean, like Picard literally asked the computer, give me a biography on Fagio. And it literally says he likes to steal light, light artifacts. So he didn't really have to do too much thinking to realize that it literally says like, he likes to stealing one of a kind things, you know, mm. like data. Yeah. Yeah. You're getting it. So it was a little yeah. bit too um, subtle. And, um, but apart from that, I mean, I think the whole way that Fagio set the whole thing up um, made a phony sort of mercy mission for the enterprise, really to put them on a wild goose chase. It's pretty believable because, you know, he looked like he was determined to get the things he wanted and he'll go to any lengths to do it. Kill, mm. you know, murder pe people, set up these elaborate things, spend money to do that. Um, I think that was great. Um, yeah, and, and his father was a thief as well. So he's been raised yeah. with uh, a lot of experience. Yeah. He's kind of, like I said, he's basically a pirate, I would say, like a space pirate, essentially. Um, <laughs> but yeah, great, great performance, especially from the guest stars like... Um, they don't have like huge amounts of time to develop their characters as like, you know, uh, they don't re really, you know, guest, guest stars, mm. but Saul Rubinek, um, Kivas Fajo is brilliant. One of the most memorable guest stars in all in all of ne next generation, in my opinion. Um, Varia, Jane Daly, uh, was very memorable as well. Again, you really felt for her when she dies in that horrific way. And, you know, they also kind of, they protected Data at the end there because he didn't mm. kill anyone, uh, but he basically effectively nearly did. It was almost attempted murder, but it wouldn't really be, it was more of a manslaughter. I don't really know what you'd have to call it. It's mm. self-defense, really. Um, and it was logical for Data to do that, I think, because there was no other way out and he would have killed more people. The only way yeah. he, he could have, he couldn't call anybody up for help. No one was coming to rescue him as far as he knew. The only way you could break the cycle, I mean, I guess you could probably say you could have, like, know, dived at Data, like, you know, and speared mm. him, like, you know, Bill Goldberg in wrestling, you know, or something. That maybe that would have done it, but um, yeah, it, but, but they did protect him because they beamed him out and he didn't do it. But still, it left a very, you know, um, a very sobering and 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 um, yeah, just it makes you really feel for. It's like that moment with Riker and Data there, just just great, brilliant, these little subtleties. Yeah, and it's a very Trek way of tackling uh, a couple of topics, which is kidnap victims and domestic abuse. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, I mean, it doesn't go like all out on them. That might have been, you know, it's probably for a, a dedicated episode on each of those, really would do those sort of justice, but it touches upon them very strongly. Um, Kivas Fajo gets, you know, like I said, he starts off being a fairly obnoxious sort of villain um, when you initially meet him when he's talking to Data at the start, like laughing and, you know, getting excited about Data. But then he gets very creepy, very sadistic quite quickly. And you mm. genuinely fear for what, what how Data is going to get out of this. And you know what? Like, oh, but weirdly, like, as much as I'm saying a lot of this stuff and this is quite dark, I was thinking that. If we ever, if we ever were to make a parody of this, if we ever, you know, decided we want, hey, let's make our own Star Trek episode, you could basically do it where, you know, a fan of Star Trek kidnaps one of the actors and takes him to his basement where he has all Star Trek collectibles that are one of a kind and just gets the actor to sit in a chair dressed in a Starfleet uniform. 
uh, to stay there forever as his Star Trek um, uh, real-life um, actor. I think that would be kind of, you know, maybe not quite so sadistic as Kivas Fagio. Thank God. Hey, if you want to do a parody. I, th- I think you'd have to be very careful on the line that you tread <laughs> in terms of how <laughs> you parody something with this nature. Yeah, it's, it's a dark episode, but if you wanted to do a lighter version, and obviously I'm not sure how many I, Trek actors would be happy to... I'd argue that's not good for a parody. That's, that's scary. It's scary <laughs> stuff. <laughs> it works both not... ways. Yeah. <laughs> do a fun version you could do an awful ver- no, version but yeah not happening I, I don't know why i've got an idea popped into my head <laughs> and with that that wraps up this episode of long range sensors so you can find out more about the show over at longrangesensors.com uh, you can follow us on twitter at star trek lrs and if you have any questions you'd like us to answer and discuss in a future episode you can even email us at longrangesensors at icloud.com We also provide exclusive member benefits to our subscribers over on Patreon. This includes our week-in advance announcements about the next episode we'll be discussing, along with access to our private Discord channel, where you can discuss this episode with us and more by joining the crew of the USS Atlantic at patreon.com forward slash long-range sensors. We still have some founder member tier slots available, which gives you exclusive lifetime perks, and we have some exclusive content planned that we hope to release to our patrons in the coming months. And of course, another great way to support the show is to share it with others, telling a friend, sharing it on social media, or informing your favorite Zabalian trader that there are at least eight podcast episodes for them to download and collect. Goes a long way to help our show reach even more people. Uh, my name's Trev. You can follow me at Henry Jones Jr. on Twitter. Um, I've also got another podcast about modern and retro video gaming with my colleague Stu, uh, and that's over at consoleshop.net. Um, Al, where can people find you? Oh, well, you can find everything I'm up to at alistairmcfly.com. Uh, you can follow me at both at alistairmcfly and at imcfly on Twitter, and you can catch me on Twitch at twitch.tv slash alistairmcfly. You've been listening to Long Range Sensors, where none of our Trek collectibles smell of bubblegum. <laughs>